Podcast One. Drum roll, please. Welcome back, Dylan Alcott. Thank you. I've been overseas, obviously playing the US Open, which we don't talk about, but obviously the French Open, <laughs> Roland Garros. Oh, you won uh, that one, did you? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, I've got to say the support from the listenable community, everybody getting in touch with us, saying congrats and things like that. It, it's amazing. I really appreciate it. And I've missed you, Gus, so it's nice to get back, mate, and start kicking on with a few more of these bloody good episodes. Yeah, I mean, when you talk about topical stuff like this, obviously it can age like milk because someone could be listening to this in two years. But, yes, Dylan has just come back from the French Open. During COVID times, he's safe. He's not positive, but he does have himself a French Open platter, I guess you could call it, a silver Yeah, platter. it looks a bit like a lasagna tray. Make it sure does. you head over to our at Listenable podcast uh, Instagram to, to check it out. Um, but there's been a fair bit going on in the – disability community. Have you seen that new Netflix series, Deaf You? That's dropped. Glad you bring it up. I did watch it. I'm enthralled by it because it's kind of like a reality television show that's kind of... The, it's like a Love Island, but yeah, for it, deaf people. Exactly right. Or it's, The Hills. Yeah, yeah exactly. it, it's, it's a reality television show about a school that is um, for the hearing impaired or, or deaf. And it's really interesting to see the intricacies of, of this community. I, I didn't know that people who sign um, find it in bad taste to yeah. use your, what they describe you know, as real voice. We're going to have someone from the deaf community to speak about it because I don't know enough, but yeah. it is a it is a minefield sometimes to try and get around because there's so many different people that are, um, for example, profoundly deaf from birth, yep. profoundly deaf from like an accident, people that choose to use hearing aids, people that choose to slip read, people that choose to use Auslan in, in Australia. They're all different communities and sometimes they don't integrate with each other, no. which I was shocked about. And this, and and I, this group of teens, I mean, you've also got the teen, you know, sexual angst in there yeah. as well. And they've got a group called the Elite, where a lot of them um, are deaf from uh, birth and their parents are as well. And so the only language they know is using sign. And they will exclude people from their conversations if they use their voice or they mouth too yeah. much. It's, well, I, I, wow, it's, it was so interesting for me to learn. When we first launched Ability Fest, which is our uh, music festival that's extra accessible for people with disability to come, um, one of my you know, really good mates from, he's from Adelaide, his name is Zane, Zane and Penny, Zane's parents are deaf. Mm. And I told him that I was going to use Auslan on stage for every lyric spoken. I just thought that was a no-brainer, right? And he's like, oh, don't know, some deaf people might not enjoy that. And I was like, what? Oh. And I was exactly right. And in the end, he came and he's like, all right, stand corrected, best thing ever. Yeah. But he knew that people from the deaf community have different ideas about like tokenism and things like that. And I was like, wow, I didn't even think about that. Yeah. And so, of course, we always say that someone's story, even every episode we do, Dylan, your story, doesn't represent every single person within that disability. Your story about paraplegia doesn't represent somebody else who has it. But, of course, it's so interesting to see different factions and ideas and opinions within the communities. And we'll get them on. So, as I said, this is just two non-deaf people speaking about being deaf at the moment. So we will have someone from the deaf community um, coming on in in a couple of episodes' time. But really interesting. Deaf You, it is out on Netflix now if you want to go check it out. Um, Let's get into this episode. A friend of yours, Dylan, a guy who I described in the lead-up to this podcast being released as one of the best storytellers. Yeah. And I've heard him speak as well, obviously a few times because we're mates, but you could hear the pin drop in our microphone, couldn't mm. you? And the way he tells the story about, you'll hear it in a moment, driving down to the airport, I think something's going to happen on that drive and so I'm waiting for it and then he twists the story. It's like oh, man. Inception. I'm like, is this top still spinning? i got no idea what's happening right now. He's yep. so great at it. 
So good, so good. So let's get into it. Yeah, g'day. My name is Mike Rolls. I'm uh, I'm born and raised in Melbourne, southeastern suburbs boy, just similar to, to Dylan. Uh, I'm a, a golf tragic, have been since I was a little fella. Um, and uh, I'm, I'm doing it tough at the moment because I'm all I'm doing is complaining to those closest to me about not being able to get out in the golf course at the minute. So it's a bit, I, I'm, I'm fairly annoying at the minute. And what is your disability? So my disability, I am a uh, double amp, a double amputee, so I don't have any uh, legs below my knees. I've been uh, a double amputee for nine years, but I've been an amputee for around about 18 years. So uh, oh. I, I, I elected to chopped my second uh, leg off when I was um, about 27 years old. Made it a tough call, but a, but a good call. It was probably the best decision I reckon I've ever made. So, Not for um, vanity reasons, uh, that, surely, that, right? Not just, uh, you know, to even things up. I reckon there was a little bit of vanity in it for sure. Absolutely. I mean, it was it was it was like a, it was an ugly thing to look at. I remember I used to get it checked out, and we can go into that a little bit later. But it was it looked like a some sort sort of you know remember the Flintstones and you'd see the bones like that's kind of what it looked like. It just was this interesting this leg that I had a I had to wear a booty on, and, and every uh, every couple of days um, it'd break down, and, and it just wasn't a viable solution. So ended up, mate making the big decision and, and amputating the dead weight. Can you tell us why you needed to have your leg amputated in the first place 16 years ago? Sure. Yeah. So like I said, um, grew up in southeastern suburbs and being in the uh, sporting capital of Australia, um, I was mad sports person, just anything that I could I could sort of get into, um, kicking the footy, whatever it was, it didn't matter. I'd, uh, I'd always be active. Um, and I, I sort of, I guess I, I sort of fell into um, playing football as we do, and um, played for the uh, Southern Footy League, uh, the Hampton United Football Club. I started when I was 17, so I was playing against guys. Some of them were ex-VFL, ex-AFL players. And, mm. um, you know, I'm very tall. I'm six foot five and I weigh about two kilos. So I'm like very tall, <laughs> skinny. And uh, and when um, uh, when I was, was playing footy against guys that were like twice my size, some of them ex-AFL players as well in the Southern Footy League. So it was quite... Quite sort of, I guess, I guess a baptism of fire. And um, after uh, at my second season, we decided to go on an end of season football trip, which you do. You know, everyone. Uh, I was I was pumped. I was eighteen. I could legally drink. I uh, could have a little bit of fun with my mates away from my folks. Um, I convinced them to pay for my ticket down to Tasmania, uh, Hobart. We were going. You are a convincing man. And because I was broke, mate. I was eighteen, <laughs> had no money. I, I didn't like. I remember I worked at Bilo. Remember Bilo? Oh, yeah. I used to love Bilo. Yes. Bilo, Bilo was the Aldi before yeah. Aldi. Anyway, yeah. So I, I convinced them to let me go because, as I said, I didn't have a lot of coin, and and they did. Went. Uh, we we finished the season, and then it was off to the trip. I remember I was going across to my mate uh, Tom Evans's house. Um, his brother and, and Tom and Matt played together in in the team with me, and uh, had my bags packed and could barely sleep the night before. I was so excited about this trip and, and just, uh, you know, what was to come. The debauchery. Yeah, yeah. So on the way over, mum's giving me the old pep talk and, you know, telling me to behave myself and I wasn't listening to a lot of what she said. And I, uh, I got to my mate's house, chucked the, the, the bags in the boot and then I uh, jumped in the car and off we went to the airport to go to Hobart with this, um, this great team and, and some good mates. And I guess that was my very last memory was actually giving my mum a kiss on the cheek. My very next memory was uh, five and a half weeks later um, after I woke up after an induced coma and I was back in Melbourne and I woke up to the sobering news that uh, I was going to be in hospital for a very long time and I was very, very ill. Um, and apparently I did go on that trip um, and I had a great time from all reports. So thanks for asking, fellas. Oh, um, God, but, I'm sorry. I'm, this story, yeah. you, you tell this story so well. You get lost I'm, 
this the twists and turns. I think I know yeah. where this is going, and then I have no idea. So you went on the footy trip, but just have no memory of the week in Hobart. Nothing, nothing at all. So and that's not because that's not because of the beers you drank. It could have been. I'll, I'll I'll just go back to the Alfred Hospital. As I said, I yeah. woke up and 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 I I remember just feeling pain all over my body, and I I couldn't really work out where it was. I just knew it was absolutely everywhere, and I'm looking around me and trying to work out what's going on. I'm on, I'm on a lot of drugs. Um, you know, morphine, et cetera. So it's not quite crystal clear at that mm. point in time. And I can see I've got tubes and there's beeping and there's, you know, I've got a, a sheet across my waist as well. So I'm not really aware of what's going on. But then I can see um, as I, I sort of scan down to my right-hand side, I can see that on my right hand I'm missing two of my fingers. You just showed yeah, that to camera did. as well and people can probably uh, see this on social media, yeah. Yeah, so I'm missing my my, my ring finger and my, uh, my middle finger and my um, – what, what do you call the other one? I wouldn't index. Know. Index. Oh, two yeah. ones. It looks like you're doing no, a not index. It's like oh, a rock. Yeah. Index. It's a it's rock. Like a rock. You're doing a rock yeah. symbol. Yeah, you're doing yeah. a rock god. Yeah, a built-in rock god. Yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> yeah. So, so I um yeah I woke up to this uh you know just just pain basically everywhere, not really able to to work out what was going on, and then I could uh, see my hand, and I'm I'm thinking far out, like what is what is going on here, and and then I remember sort of vaguely noticing my entire family, um, my mum, my dad, my brother, and my sister staring down at me in this in this bed. And your, your first reaction in that moment is to ask a question. And I remember trying to ask a question and nothing comes out of my mouth because I've got a tracheotomy tube in my neck as well, which is helping me to breathe. Mm. And, and I remember this doctor, he comes in and he, and he's, he sort of says to me, Mike, you know, you've been a really sick boy and uh, I'm really sorry. You know, I'm in hospital for a long time. And I'm thinking like, what the fuck is going on here? I mean, I, my last memory, I'm running around a footy field and I'm fit as a fiddle. And now I can't even uh, lift my arm more than an inch above the bed without, you know, my arm shaking completely. I just had no strength. Uh, and then he comes in, he says, Mike, you've been sick. You've been in hospital for a long time. Uh, I'm really sorry, mate, but you contracted meningococcal septicemia. Now, I, I didn't even know what that was. I'd never even heard those words before, let alone how, you know, how does that, how does that even happen? What does it mean? Uh, and then he came in the third day and, uh, you know, I say first day, second day, third day, but that's what it felt like. It was just like a gradual, like one kick in the gut, two kick in the gut, mm. three. And then the, the ultimate kick came when he comes in and he breaks the news that, you know, Mike, you've been sick, you've been in hospital for a long time, you contracted meningococcal. And I'm sorry to tell you, but you've lost your right leg below your knee and half your left foot. And, you know, I can't even imagine exactly what my family would have gone through because in many ways I was lucky. In so you know the, the fact that I was asleep through all of this, um, you know, when I was in Hobart, I breathed in at the wrong time. I contracted this horrific disease uh, that affects, I think, 222 people in any given year in Australia. There's 13 strains of it, and five are prevalent in Australia. Um, I caught meningococcal C was a strain that I caught, and 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 as I said, it causes uh, septicemia. I remember being told that I was about to fly home from the trip and I was lying on the, the airport floor rolling around and my mate said, oh, you don't look real good. Everyone thought I was just hungover. I was rushed by ambulance back to Hobart. Yeah, back to Hobart Hospital. And they called my parents and said, oh, Mike's just been admitted to hospital. He wasn't feeling too well. And then they couldn't get a lot more information. And then the next morning, they rang up to see where I was. Uh, and they said, you, you've got to get down to Hobart. Mike's got about one hour to live. Oh. That's how quick it happened. To give you a bit of an idea, um, my injuries were just so immense. I mean, it sounds funny to say this, but my physical injuries were the least of my concerns. It wasn't even a big thing. You know, my disability ended up being, you know, I'm a double amputee. But at that point, I had uh, liver failure, kidney failure. I had three bleeds in my brain. Uh, so they were telling when I woke up that I'd have significant brain damage. My weight went from 80 kilos down to 47 kilos oh over that five and a half week period in a coma. And 
And it was just all, you know, um, it's funny, like you, you, you're looking for anything, you know, you're looking for a bit of good news and there was none. It was just one thing after another. It was Golden Staff um, and then it was another setback and then they'd take the trackie out um, and I'm thinking, wow, great, I can talk finally. And then that was a really scary night where I nearly suffocated after they took that out because I had so many uh, infections on my lungs, I couldn't breathe. I was so weak. So this is all um, really lighthearted, guys. What a great way to start no, the morning. <laughs> it's so interesting as well, you know, because it's important to talk about these things, and especially when you don't know much about it. I've got to ask, you said, oh, I just breathed at the wrong time and I got meningococcal. Yeah. That sounds petrifying. Yeah. Like, what does that mean? Kind of it feels was like the, that could happen with COVID. COVID. So was it in the air? Is it Where does it live on surfaces? Yeah, what so, so I, I, I'm going to put a disclaimer on this one straight away, Dill. I'm not a, an epidemiologist and I don't understand infectious diseases. And to be quite frank, I don't really care. Yep. If, if there's anyone out there that can, that can correct this, feel free. But from what I understand... Um, I was told that 20% of the population, the general population, carry the germ on the back of their throat and it only becomes active at certain times of year. So we often see a lot. At the time I got sick, I think there was about nine cases in mm -hmm. particular. And everyone says, oh, there's an outbreak. There's not an outbreak. I mean, none of us kind of came into contact with each other apparently. It just became prevalent. I don't know. I, I think the year before I left, I was in Vietnam with a family for a family holiday and had glandular fever, so I, I can only assume that maybe that had a had a bit of a took a bit of a toll on my on my immune system. Mm. I was at the end tail end of a football season, and I was drunk, probably you know drinking with a few mates, and I wasn't in the best health. Uh, maybe I was run down. I was susceptible to it, and um, I breathed in at the wrong time. So of the two twenty that get it in any given year, ten percent lose limbs or die. So it's about one in a million chance of getting it. So I'm certainly don't want to count. You know, I'm very mindful of not not scaring people in any way um it's a topical subject because of what we're all going through mm. now with the pandemic um but it's yeah it's certainly something that um at least now there's vaccinations available yeah. uh, which is great that protect against four of the strains of the five i've got two questions to backtrack on your story where yeah, I, yeah, I got lost what is the septicemia part yeah so meningococcal is basically yeah. so you you would have heard of meningitis yeah, of so if people get meningitis apparently it's when the infection enters the bloodstream and causes blood poisoning and that's when all your major organs start to shut down so i developed septicemia and that's the reason for the amputations you know it sounds funny but my parents in those horrific days had to sign consent forms to um to allow for the doctors to amputate my limbs now i can't even imagine what that would have been like for them yeah but at this at you know at the same time if they didn't I would have died. That's like my Parts dad. of my body started to turn black. My blood couldn't pump. It becomes coagulated a bit like slime, I guess you could say. My, my, they said to my dad, can we, we have to give Dylan a lethal shot of steroids and yeah. he'll probably die. Can you just sign here to make sure that it's okay? Mm. And he's like, what kind of choice is that? But they have to yeah. do it, you know, and they're glad. Yes. You and I are the lucky ones that we don't make those decisions. Like, mm. it's way I, I, it's what I often say that. I said, I was like, I was lucky. I said, I say, you know, my... I was having a nice nap for five and a half weeks while all this was going on. So my parents were faced yeah. with unimaginable horror uh, and I can't ever understand what they went through. And I guess my battle started the moment I woke up and that's when the fight, the fighting began, I guess. I'm going to be a father in February. And oh, congratulations. Uh, yeah, thanks, man. It's fantastic. It's scary. I'm scared about like dropping my daughter, you know, let alone having to make these life-changing decisions. We've had a couple of these stories of amputation. Cherie was another one where her parents had to make the decision for her hip below her leg to make it because of a cancer. They had to make that decision yeah. pretty much for yep. her. It, it, man, that's so scary. When, when they're cutting off your legs and half your foot, where do they just decide to cut? 
So does the septicemia start from a point and go below? Like where do they make yeah, the decision? Gen- general, the general rule is that they say what they can. Okay. It's below the knee because my foot had gone black and it wasn't right. uh, had no circulation to it. And then they had to debride part of the foot too on the left side. So they tried to say what they could. Problem with that is, you know, I do a lot of work with Limbs for Life, which is a peak body uh, to support amputees in Australia. And the story, uh, the stories of people trying to save a limb uh, for 9, 10, 11 years mm-hmm. and having operation after operation yeah. is a very common one. It's kind of like one of those things they mean well, but... Uh, once I got out of that hospital phase, many, many, you know, built my strength up and got back to trying to live life. Um, that was kind of kind of one of the things that really held me back for many, many years. And um, you don't put your hand up and say, hey, I want to go back to surgery. It's not, it's not, yeah. not a natural decision to make. Yeah. You're like, hey, yeah, look, I'm up for that. Um, it takes time to process that. And I guess I probably needed the the length of time, which was the nine years to to, to get on top of that decision. Yeah, I agree with you. It's the same as people that have car accidents and they spend $60,000 a year going to America to learn how to walk again and they do it for 10 years. They weigh 600 grand and they go, I should have just lived my life in a wheelchair. It's great. Like, you know what I mean? Yeah, like, they got I, to can, fi- I can relate to that. Yeah, you got to you got to find that themselves. And I'm like, trust me, you're wasting your time. Like, just get busy living. It's a bit different, yep. but you'll be fine. You know what yeah. I mean? Yeah. My other part that I want to backtrack to is you said the last memory you have is before you even went on the footy trip is kissing your mum on the cheek. I I imagine you had a great week in Hobart with the guys and then you went. I did. So how do you not remember that? I can understand that maybe you lose your memory from the point of going to the hospital in Hobart or something. I think think that I was just in massive organ failure, massive shutdown. So they were given, they'd given, they'd given me a a 5% chance to live. And I had my, I think they gave, we've got a really, it's a funny thing. I look back now, I think Jesus like, but we, we've got a family friend who's a priest and he gave me the, the prayer of the last rites oh. a couple of times, <laughs> you know, but, and he's about to, he baptized all the children in our families. He's a really great guy. Father Gerald, his name is. And, and, and it was a, a situation when I woke up that I was, uh, I should have died. You know, I probably should have died. There's no doubt about that, but maybe it's a good thing that all of the, the massive amount of, of drugs and pain meds that they have to give you uh, to keep you alive through that time. It's probably a good thing that my memory was wiped and, and I remember the first question I asked, funnily enough, was, you know, what's happening in America was when I could communicate. And they're all like, what are you talking about? And it was because it was just after the 9-11 attacks. But I remembered that. Oh. And, and I remember memories. thinking, I remember asking, I wanted to know what's happening in America. And they were like, oh, they finally got it. And they were sort of explaining things to me. But they're like, oh, that was um, so yeah. five weeks yeah. ago. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, hey, yeah. By the way, Mark, yeah. you got no legs, yeah. bro. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's all I really cared about at the time. So can this week fascinates me that is wiped from your memory do your footy mates who had this week of beers you know trips around wineries oyster shucking i imagine in hobart all the fun oh, stuff mate, I, did I, you I've do it all with you, it was probably at, at the casino yeah. and i didn't move from the casino yeah, right, and they were right. just punting and, <laughs> yeah, yeah, and yeah, yeah, years. Yeah. if you're but, thinking that football trips involve wineries angus i'm not sure where, yeah, which no, no, ones no, you've mate, been I, on i went to bangalore no road in thailand don't worry I, yeah, i've done a footy trip yeah. So that you so were they normal, had, um, like you were normal. They you're drinking beers. Yeah, you didn't spend yeah, nights in the hostel or something. Well, it must have been pretty bad to go from the airport uh, to to back to the Hobart Hospital in an ambulance. Yeah, that would have been the you know look. I was too sick to fly, and then yeah, had you know I guess none of them got not got sick either. Yeah. Um, but thankfully, one of the guys on my football team stayed back with me and um, accompanied me to to the to the back to the the hospital, which was you know I mean. Again, I don't really have any recollection, so I'd yeah. love to be able to tell you more about the trip, but I just don't know. Yeah. yeah. You were up the creek by all reports. It was. Big trouble. How? At what point did it start to turn, started building your strength back, organs started functioning? And to be honest, 
the most amazing thing is your brain function. Like, as you said, yeah. to have that many bleeds on your brain and, I mean, you're so well-spoken. Luckily, the uh, meninges cockle didn't touch your face. You're a beautiful-looking man too. <laughs> so, I did. So I lost part of my nose. So that – did you know that? No, I did know that, but, like, you can't yeah. tell. Like, so, uh, so just a disclaimer, a lot of people in the Paralympics have meninges cockle as well because it cuts your limbs off. Yeah. And if you're a double amputee, I'll tell you what you're good at, being in a wheelchair because your power to weight ratio is great. Okay. And – so they often have bigger scars on their face, but your it did touch your face as well. Yeah, a little bit. I got um so part of my nose I had to chop off. So my left hand side, and there was all like I had a, I had an operation early days. And it's funny when you know it's it's such a weird. I find it a, such a strange thing. People are like, oh, I didn't even realize. But I look in the mirror, and I'm like, like you I didn't know, it but like, it's a good. They job. grabbed they grabbed my ear. They took a bit of my cartilage in my ear, stuck it on my nose, and it was like a two stage operation. They had to do revision to make it like smaller, but. He did a good enough job. They were talking about putting a balloon in my forehead and then transferring the skin down here. And I'm like, like, no I, way. I was going to say you do have weird ears, but not your nose. No. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, that's the ongoing joke. I sit there, you know, during Q&A. I sit, sorry, what's that over there? Like I just have a bit of a laugh. The for a nose. Well, it's good because people are now going to be pushed to go and see what you look like on our social media now. So a great way to push people over there. Thanks for that. But what was the turning point when you're yeah. in hospital? I would say there wasn't a great turning point. The turning point was obviously going to rehab. Mm-hmm. You know, I went from the Alfred Hospital in Melbourne after around about, oh, it was a fair while, like I was, it was in the months. And then it was a case of going to Caulfield General Medical Centre, which was uh, built to house the returning war veterans. And it hasn't been updated since, still mm-hmm. hasn't. Just like the biggest dump ever, but they had a great amputee ward. So I remember going the first time and I was this, you know, skinny mess in a wheelchair. And I'd, I'd only just started sitting in a wheelchair because I was so weak and I, my, I, like I literally lost all the grafts on my ass and everything. I had no muscle uh, on my bum. So I used to be in agony when I used to sit up. And I, I, I guess I got there. I got to meet my first ever amputee. Um, and, and that was a really special moment because I, I hadn't had an opportunity to meet anyone that had been there and done that before. And we're still great mates. His name's Kevin. Um, and I remember so clearly that, that very first day that I met him, they wheeled me up and I was pretty miserable, wheeled me up. They have an orderly. They wheel you up to the actual amputee ward and he wheels me up to the, through this hallway and you go past this, uh, the entrance they've got, they thought it would be a good idea to put antique prosthetic limbs from the wall or the wooden yeah, arms. always do that, like the history Mate, of how far they've come. Wheelchairs with yeah. square There's wheels. A, I'm like, I don't give a, a crap. <laughs> yeah, right. yeah, yeah. I looked at them, they're wooden legs and I'm looking at, you know, the orderly. I'm like, you know, am I going to have to wear one of those things? I was just <laughs> shitting myself. And then we got to the the front of the uh, or the start of the, um, I guess the rehab ward where there was amputees. And I'm looking around. I can see these, you know, a few old of them. There was this, there was this really uh, big, tall fellow with red hair, um, with this leathery skin like a crocodile, freckles all over him, and he's missing half the teeth in his head. He's rough as guts, <laughs> and his name's Kevin. I didn't know. I'm just watching him, and he's got an above knee, and he's walking around and watching the way the leg was was moving and everything. And I'm, 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 the orderly's gone by this stage and I'm just left sitting there in this chair and I'm just watching and observing. And then all of a sudden he sees me in this chair and he kind of like looks at me and he, he wanders over with his customary, you know, this limp. And he looked down at me, I'll never forget. And he goes, mate, you're f***ed like that. That's what he said. <laughs> First thing he said to me. And, and I remember looking up and thinking, oh, thanks for letting me know, mate. I was, I was totally unaware of that. Like he's pointing out the obvious. Um, and then we quick, quickly, um, got chatting and became really great mates. Mm. Uh, and that was kind of the way that he, he broke the ice and it was it sort of set the tone for our relationship going forward. And and I remember looking forward, it was probably the only thing that I looked forward in my life was actually going to rehab because I got to see Kevin mm. and relate to somebody, uh, have, having someone that I could relate to um, that had been there and done that and he pushed me. And uh, I'd like to say I pushed him, but I probably didn't. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm sure but, you did. But he really helped in that, those moments. So that was kind of, I guess... 
uh, one of the turning points that you were saying, Dill, would be around, um, you know, would have been around meeting someone that uh, had been through something similar because until that point, I was getting told all about what I was going to be feeling yep. by psychs, by OTs, by social workers, who by physios. Who aren't amputees. Correct. Yeah. So that's where the power of, of peer-to-peer uh, support comes in. Can we talk mindset in the early days? Is there a part of you, because um, some people who lose a limb, it might be in an accident or it might have been subjected to just that moment and they might not have had their life in crisis. Um, their mindset might be different to yours. Do you have a positive mindset that you're thankful to be alive and therefore you're just dealing with the injuries of it? What was your mindset in those early days? I would be lying if I said I wasn't, you know, in a bit of a bad way when it came to Caulfield because, I, you know, I was 18 years old. All my friends were traveling. Mm. Uh, they were out partying. They were socializing. And I'm stuck in a rehab ward with majority of the guys and I'm stuck in with a 60-year-old diabetics mm. and mm. trying to work out where the hell do you move on from something like this? Mm. Like, what's, what's the pathway back? And I remember specifically one of the things that I, was, I, I had to do and I had to prove to do, which I thought was another crazy thing at 18 years old, I had to prove them to, to the physios, I had to prove to my nurses and doctors that I had to be able to have a shower on my own. That was my goal. If I could do that, they were going to let me go home. And I couldn't wait to get home. Mm. Uh, and I remember that morning I got undressed and I wheeled myself into the, the shower. And again, design floor at Caulfield General Medical Center was, was they had a full length mirror from floor to ceiling on the only entrance and the way into the shower, um, which is, you know, what a great idea in an amputee <laughs> ward. And I, as I wheeled past this mirror, I could see uh, my reflection. And I've got to be honest with you, my mindset went down the, the drain in that moment. I was confronted with probably the, the worst sight that I could ever imagine. I wasn't really aware of how bad I actually looked. Um, you know, I had this gaunt, emaciated figure staring back at me. I'm looking down at my right leg, which is missing. I can see this leg with extensive skin grafting and half of my foot chopped off on the left-hand side. And then I looked at my face and I just had these sunken in cheeks and I thought, well, how the hell do you move on from this? Mm-hmm. Like, and that was probably the biggest moment of doubt when I thought, I don't think I, I probably, you know, I, I'm not sure how I can. Um, I certainly didn't rule it out, but it was, it was at the, my, my doubts were at probably at an all time high, but I got in that shower and then I jumped back in the chair very slowly, mind you. And then I was able to uh, wash myself and then, and then I was able to finally get home after six months. And I guess the turning point that Dill asked about came probably a little way after that. And we talked about mindset in those days, um, probably I was in a why me mindset and mm. I was stuck there. Uh, I was in a resistance mindset where I wasn't wanting to embrace the change. I wanted to go back to the way my life was. I was mourning the loss of a leg and, and all the rest of it. Um, the loss of everything, loss of my social life, loss of my hopes. Mm-hmm. Um, all these things were just going through my head and I was focused on the past and I was asking, you know, why me? And I, I I'm not, being hard on myself because I understand it's a perfectly reasonable question to ask in those moments. But I remember one day, and I share this story a lot, um, was was a, a bit of a tipping point. And it was when my dad decided that on a Sunday uh, morning, he wanted to take me out and um, you know go for a bit of a drive with me. And all I wanted to do on Sundays after a big week of rehab was lie down and watch telly like a lot of us do. Mm. And uh, he's, he's popped his head into the room and he said, hey, Mike, you know what are you up to? And I said, not much, mate. Just, just going to sit and watch TV if that's all right. And he goes, I want to go, we go for a bit of a drive. You know, it's a nice day outside. I'm like, oh, no, thanks, mate. I'm, I'm, you know, I've only just got this first prosthetic leg on. It means we're going to have to get into the chair. And I'm thinking, you know, it's all too hard work. So I just start firing excuses at him. And he's not taking no for an answer. And he's got this, you know, real cheeky look on his face. He goes, come on, 10 minutes and we'll, we'll turn around. I'll pop you back into bed. And I jumped in the chair reluctantly, wheels me out the back, uh, to the front, pops me in the car, put my seat back so that I'm comfortable. 
And then we start driving from my house in Sandringham down south and we get to about 10 minute mark. And I remember I'm wearing a watch and I'm thinking, you know, okay, you said 10 minutes, mate. So as soon as it hits a 10 minute mark, I turn to my dad and I say, okay, enough's enough. You said 10 minutes, uh, turn the car around, take me home. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I'm starting to get really sore. I'm in a lot of pain. Uh, I need to get back to bed. And he kind of just ignored me, kept driving. It's okay, mate, it's a beautiful day, 10 more minutes. So he keeps on driving and I'm getting a little bit ticked off and I'm thinking, how selfish is he being? You know, he's not really considering what I'm going through and how much pain I'm in. He's just doing what he wants to do. And we get about 20 minutes down the road and uh, I remember sort of cracking the shits with him. I go, mate, you said 10. It's, I'm doing mathematical sums at this point <laughs> in time, working out how long it's going to be till I'm back in my bed. Watching the Super Simpson Saturday. Yeah, and he's just, he just keeps on driving. He's not, uh, he's not listening to what I'm saying. And uh, we get about down towards the Mornington Peninsula and I'm thinking, you know, how selfish. I'm, I'm 45 minutes away from home. That's 90 minutes away from the bed. I'm in extreme pain. I don't know uh, what I have to say to make this, this idiot turn the car around. And then he drives the, the car into the Dunes Golf Course driveway. And I remember thinking, what are we doing here? You know, like I'm thinking, well, we had these incredible um, – memories at the dunes dad used to pick me up from school in year nine year 10 and, and say hey do you want to go down and play golf after lunchtime and i say i'll be at school and he goes no you won't be waiting at the front gate i'll pick you up and uh and we'll go down and play golf at the dunes but don't tell your mum." he used to <laughs> say to me so so when we drove into the dunes golf course i'm like what are we doing here dad and he goes i've just got to go up and take a quick piss i'll be right back parks the car leaves and i wait about five six seven minutes and he's still not back and then i look up and i can see he's driving back in a golf cart and I'm thinking, you cheeky bugger, same look on his face. And opens the door and I screamed at him. Like, I'm like, what the hell do you think you're doing with that? And he looks at me and he, he's got that same look and he says, hey, Mike, why don't we go for a bit of a drive? And all of a sudden, you know, all the things that I, I couldn't do, all the excuses about why I couldn't do it started to sort of spew out of my mouth. You know, all the, the limiting beliefs, you know, the why me uh, mentality was just there for everyone to see. And I started to throw excuses as to why I couldn't get in that cart and go up, you know, for a bit of a drive with my dad. And he sort of just pleads with me. And he says, why don't we, you know, just jump in the cart. Um, we'll go for a quick drive up the first fairway and then we'll turn the cart around, put you back in the car and take you home. And it's fair to say I'm not believing a lot of what he's say, telling me at this I've point in time. Before, dad. <laughs> so um, I, I end up, you know, reluctantly he helps me across. I've got this leg on, I'm balancing so I can pivot. Uh, I, get in, I get into this tiny golf cart and we drive up the first fairway of the Dunes Golf Course. And I've got to admit, all the pain disappeared. It was just incredible to be uh, outside in, you know, sunshine on my face, smell of the fresh cut grass, away from that sterile environment that I was stuck in for six months. Being normal and, again, you know? Yeah, just live. Yeah. And, and, and it just disappeared. It's amazing what, what can happen when you're distracted, you know, when it comes to things like pain. But he stops the cart in the middle of the fairway and thinking, what now? And turned around and then cheeky bugger has snuck a seven iron into the golf cart and pulls a golf ball out of his pocket. And he says, hey, Mike why don't you have a hit, mate? And I said, Dad, I know you want me to have a hit. Now, I know this clearly means a lot for you, but, mate, there's no way that I can hit a golf ball. You know, I've only just learned to stand up on this leg. You know, I've only learned to just transfer from a car to a wheelchair, from a wheelchair to a car. There's no way I can swing a golf club, let alone hit a ball. And he says, well, it's okay. He goes, how about this? What about I hold you up by the hips? If you fail, no big deal. So he sits there and I, you know, reluctantly agree again. And, and I, I get out of the cart and I get my balance best I can. I take a couple of steps. I drop the ball in the fairway. And Dad's holding me up by my hips. And I remember I, I got as balanced as I possibly could. And I swung back. And as I came through, I made this most crisp, beautiful contact with the golf clubs. <laughs> Came right out of the middle of this seven iron. It must have gone like 
140, 150 metres down the fairway. And oh. Dad's so excited, he's completely forgot to hold me. He's like, great shot, mate, completely <laughs> fell flat on my face on the, on, on the first fairway of the Jude's golf course. Um, and he's dancing around like a cat on a hot tin roof thinking, oh, my God, I've hurt him even more than he's already hmm. bloody hurt. Um, and he hadn't hurt me. And, and I remember I rolled over and, and, and we both had a bit of a chuckle and a laugh in that moment uh, together. And it's something that I, I share that story quite a bit because I think we all have someone like my dad in our lives that, that pushes us when we don't want to be pushed. And I realized in that moment that if I had any chance whatsoever of living a happy, healthy life, given the circumstances and given the misfortune of breathing in at the wrong time and getting this horrible disease, that I had to stop telling myself all the things that I couldn't do and start focusing on the things that I could and that's where I guess the mindset and the mentality changed. And it was thanks to the help of, of my amazing dad. Um, I went from that YB mentality to, to saying, well, what's next in my life? And that's always been, I guess, my mantra from that point in time has been, why don't we ask what's next? Why don't we look to the future? We, it's okay to look back, um, but we've got to be looking back so that we can learn from the past. Um, we can't be, be, be stuck there. We can't be wanting to go back because it's, it's, it's just not possible. So from a mindset perspective, that's something that's really helped me, asking what's next, building momentum when there is none. Um, and and, and it's, it's been something that I've kept with me uh, and, and I, I really thank, I'm really thankful to my dad for that. Beautiful stuff, man. Mate, that's an amazing, beautiful story. That's so good. And also, it was not the last crisp seven iron you hit, was it? Because you are now a double amputee, yeah. one half a hand, another hand, Bit of a weird nose, but you you were like a, prof- <laughs> like a proper professional golfer these days. What do you play off off the oh, stick? Uh, at the moment, I think five point two. Um, <laughs> People that play golf certainly would not consider myself to be to be a um to prof- a professional. Mate, you golfer. played at the Australian. Uh, did I'm, you not play the Australian I, I Open? I played pretty good. You played at the Australian Open for people with yeah, but yeah, I was I was the worst of the Aussies that played. So I, no, I, I, oh, I, I got a, I got a, a Guernsey. But we have we've had some incredible experiences. There's been some great movement over the last um, two or three years, thanks to um, a guy called Christian Hamilton from Golf Australia, um, has really advocated for people with disability to get involved in the sport at an elite level. And we've had these amazing opportunities where we've had uh, we've obviously had the inaugural uh, All Abilities Championship at the Australian Open, where internationals came across for that up at the Lakes. Um, and then uh, oh, the World Cup was another thing. We played the, um, the dis- they call it the Disabled Golf Cup. The ISPS handed Disabled Golf Cup. Uh, and the Aussies, I think it was the six best Aussies versus the six best internationals we played as well. So there's some great things. And then also we had a, a, an opportunity to play a 10-hole sort of exhibition event at the President's Cup, which was, again, yeah. um, just, just absolutely incredible. There's some amazing, amazing people that you meet. I'm sure Dylan could say the same, you know, being involved in sport disability sport, you just meet some incredible athletes. And I know we mentioned before um, some of the meningococcal survivors that are on the, the Paralympic team, Eliza O'Connell, I'll give a shout out to her. She's, she's a meningococcal and she was saying that she's, she does a lot of uh, wheelchair um, events as well. Yeah, there was a, one of my old basketball teammates, shout out to Bridie Keane. She was the yep. captain of the Australian women's basketball wheelchair team, um, the gliders, and I call her Bridie Notos because she lost her feet to Meningococcal. <laughs> I met Bridie early on, actually. Yeah, I met Bridie very, very early on, actually, she's years and years ago. Yeah. And it was, yeah, she's a really lovely, Absolutely. lovely person for sure. So when your dad took you yeah, out on sorry. that fairway, the Dunes, at this stage you weren't the double yeah. amputee that you are now? No. So, so I made a decision nine years later. I what I did was I, I sort of just got on with things as best I could, and that meant dressing my foot every second day for nine years, which is a real pain in the ass. Um, 
but it's something I just sort of said it is what it is. You know, I, I used to use that that a lot, you know, and I, I like that term when you're referring to something that you can't change. I think it makes sense and it's helpful. But when you're referring to something that you you just don't want to make change on, I think it can be pretty destructive. And that's where what it sort of became. That foot was like, oh, it is what it is. Not much I can do about it. Until uh, I had a, uh, a checkup at the Caulfield, had to go back into Caulfield. I avoided it like a plague, but I had this regular checkup. And my doctor unwraps a foot. She looks at it and she says, I don't like the look of that foot, Mike. And I said, neither do I. It's ugly. And she goes, oh, I think it's a bit angry. You should go off and get a scan. So I did. And I came back a couple of days later and she said, Mike, I'm sorry. You've got osteomyelitis in the bone, which is a low-grade bone infection. I was thinking to myself, what does that mean? And she goes, well, your body's always fighting an infection. You know, how do you feel? And at 27 years old, I'm like, oh, I'm okay, I guess. And she goes, what about your pain levels? Yeah, I've always got pain. It's through the roof. Mm -hmm. And she's like, what about your appetite? Yeah, it's not great. I don't eat much. And she started to point out and pinpoint all these things that um, that, that was wrong with me and and how I things that I guess had become camouflage over time. And uh, and she said, yeah, it's because you're, you're always fighting an infection. You probably should do something about that. And I guess by bringing the these things that were in my subconscious into my into my consciousness, it was I was able to sort of you know really come to terms and be honest and take ownership of the situation and. I kind of made a decision there where I had the, the the benefit of knowing what it was like to wear a prosthetic leg on the right side. So I kind of said, oh, look, you know, what about if I just, you know, even it up, get it chopped off and put it behind me? Um, so I went and saw five different surgeons um, and I wanted to do my homework because I didn't want to, it's obviously a, a pretty large decision, I guess, really you could say, chopping off your only remaining limb. Yep. So, so I wanted to do my homework. So I did uh, first surgeon again um, with the mindset. And again, I understand it was like, oh, look, we want to take, you know, before you go and do anything drastic, we'll take a flat from your back and put it on your foot and try and, you know, heal it that way. But Mike, you'll spend six months in hospital. And I'm like, you know, piss off. There's no way I'm spending six months in the hospital again uh, till eventually I found one surgeon. And the big difference was this. A lot of them will tell you what they're going to do to you or for you. And, and I've, you know, in terms of advocating and, and empowering people to advocate for themselves, one of the most amazing experiences was I went to a surgeon called Dr. Michael Young, and the first question that he asked me was, what do you want to do? And I told him exactly what I wanted to do. I said, I want you to chop my leg off. Can you do that? And he said, yeah, I can do that. It'll be a two-stage operation. You might need revision, but I can do it. And I booked in the surgery date that day mm. for a five and a half weeks later. And I remember feeling a level of anxiety I've never experienced. You know, like, what am I doing? I mean, have I made the right decision here? Like, what if, what, if, what if something goes wrong? It was this massive decision, but the evidence was overwhelming that it was the right one. So I remember going as, as a lead up to that, that surgery uh, came, I was, uh, you know, the anxiety levels increased. I wanted to bail plenty of times. I just wanted to say, okay, yeah, look, it was a nice idea, but I don't really want to do that. But I didn't. I stuck to it and I had the surgery. It was, I think it was a six-hour surgery and then another six hours to reconstruct the limb. It was about 140 stitches because I had all these skin issues. So they had to totally and, – and funnily enough, like he, I, I, I coach people that experience injuries and I, I took one of my clients to him the other day because he's got a through-knee amputation and Michael's – we, we were talking about what he did to me and he goes, oh, I've got the photos. Do you want to see them? Oh, <laughs> he had all the surgical photos. Wow. Um, and I, and I said to him, I said, I don't want to see him, but can you airdrop them to my phone? Cause my wife's a freak and she loves seeing all this sort of stuff. So, <laughs> so I've got them on my phone and I've, I've sort of seen a glimpse, but I can't, um, you know what he had to do. Um, yeah. just like, these guys are miracle workers. You'd never even know their name. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so he did this huge reconstruction. It looked like a giant Christmas ham. And I'm, I remember waking up thinking, how the f am I ever going to get that into a socket? But over time it sort of settled down. I was able to put a leg on. 
And then I was able to walk relatively pain-free and that was a really liberating moment. And I guess that's, uh, I don't want to say it's when my life started again, but it kind of felt like that. Now, you touched on your wife. We'll, we'll get to her in a minute. We want to hear about how you went about dating. However, going to double amputee also enabled you to do something else. We had somebody called Curtis McGrath on who's a double amputee and he's a yep. big boy. And I was like, Curtis, you 100% have juiced yourself up. You aren't yeah. that tall, but he reckons he was that tall. Now, Mike Rolls. He's probably fibbing, yeah. Have you juiced yourself up? Are you taller now? Yeah, I'm an inch and a half taller. Yeah. Ah. So how big, you, how big were you and how big you were? You were 6'5". So I'm about six foot five now, and uh, I wasn't even aware that I'd become taller, but I, it happened because I, I got some uh, new legs made, and then I went straight, obviously, as you do, I'm like, I'm going to see if I can play golf in these new things. So I went <laughs> to the golf course, and I could barely hit the ball, kept topping everything, and I'm like, you know, not, not hitting it well. I'm like, what is going on? And then I remember putting my, le- my old legs back on because I'm kind of sore, so I got back to the car. I have a, you know, I always carry a pair, spare pair of legs around wherever I go, <laughs> as, you, as you do. Your boot's a lot different to mine. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I've got eight legs altogether. And uh, <laughs> when I chucked the other pair of legs, and I'm like, wow, I feel shorter. And I did some measuring. And then I went back to my prosthetist the next day because I had to do a few adjustments. I'm like, mate, you realize you make me made me about a full inch and a half taller than I was. And he's like, ah, oh, that's okay. He goes, we'll just pop you down a little bit. I'm like, don't you bloody touch me. <laughs> so I, mean, so I just sort of, I, I decided to stay up here. And um, and it's, you know, the air's, air's a little bit fresher up here, Bill. So. <laughs> hey, yeah, I, hey, I definitely wouldn't know. <laughs> Uh, when I sit on a tall hill, I'm like, wow, I'm so tall. It's a bit scary. <laughs> hey, what about Jason Day or Ty Woods going, I'm swinging like a rusty gate today. I might just get some more legs out. Grow a bit. Yeah. Smack it down the fairway. Oh, yeah, I mean, look, look at, and, the, and it's funny. The legs that I wear for golf are totally different. Like they're, they're not easy to walk around. They're, they're more flexible. Like they twist in the sockets so I can get through the swing a bit better. Um, and they're just my golf legs. So um, you just got to pay for extra luggage when you do interstate. Yeah. When you go interstate playing yeah, cool. golf, it's a bit of a pain. So they take up a lot of room. Now, Mike, uh, I've got a question about your name, Mike Rolls. It seems yes. a little bit too perfect for a guy who is in disability, who was in a wheelchair for a while. It, is that, it a stage name? Me, Angus? Uh, it's certainly not a stage okay. name. No, no, no. It's, uh, it's not a stage name. <laughs> it's a stage name. <laughs> I've got a stage name with my, my greatest mate, uh, Ben Pettingill. We're going to get to that. Do know. Hit us now. So yeah. Ben Pettingill, who was episode two he's of the Listen Able podcast, he's, um, yeah. he's low vision, pretty much blind, 98% blindness. What are your, so what he you says. Got? That's what he says, I reckon. <laughs> hey, he's, he goes, oh, deal, you forgot your water bottle. How do you even know? Um, <laughs> what do you call yourselves, you two? Our business is called Real Life Resilience, and we do, but, but apart from that, I mean, the, the name you're referring to, we do a corporate double act which is a little bit different. We had a lot of fun with it called Legless and Blind. So um, <laughs> we've become really good mates and we, we spend a lot of time together. He's a, a remarkable human being. I'm sure everybody would know. I listened to, to his episode as well. Uh, don't get sick of hearing it. But it's based on lived experience, which again, that stems from that peer-to-peer stuff we spoke about. You know, like yeah. having, uh, having people to extract learnings from a real-life experience that have got success through adversity, I think it's an incredibly powerful thing and something we all need right now. Managers and companies don't realize they need it. You yeah. know what I mean? Like they don't yeah. realize that disability affects their life or they don't realize that people that work there might be going through MS, might be going through something and they don't want to talk about yeah. it, do they? Or have an accident that's going to happen in the future yeah. and that's going to rock their lives, but they might have some sort of base of understanding thanks to you guys. So from an able-bodied guy, Absolutely. I, I'm so in awe of all the guests that we have. And, and Mike, this has been incredible so far, but we do uh, continue. We need to know, of course, Dylan's one of your mates. He goes, we've got to talk about the missus. Yeah, she's she's out there doing a workout at the moment, oh, actually. So she? she's and you're batting uh, well, and you're a good-looking man, but you're batting as well, batting well. About yeah, of course. So oh, I. I'm well aware of that. Yeah. Um, 
Yeah, she's she's incredible. So one of the things I'll say about her first up is that she's most she's probably the most positive person I reckon I've ever met. Like she doesn't really have a bad day. It's kind of weird in a way. <laughs> Even when she's grumpy, she's kind of not grumpy. She's just got an incredible outlook. And she's American. She's from Alabama. Um, she was we met about four years ago. We uh, she was out here, um, followed her company to the uh, Pew Synthes, it was called, or Johnson, Johnson & Johnson, so she's a medical sales yeah, rep, okay. and she got an opportunity to come from Australia. And it's not a, not a really a, a normal thing for someone from the South of America just no. to relocate to a, to Melbourne, Australia, but she, that's the kind of person she is. So she decided to relocate here. She, was, uh, she had a job, lived in Richmond um, in her apartment, and I was um, single at the time. And I'll, I'll share the story of how, how we met because it's quite a, a funny one. Thank uh, you. We, yep. That's what we're after we, here. We uh, were both on a, a website that you may or may not know, Dylan uh, and Angus, called Plenty of Fish. Yeah, okay. of course. It's a, it's a it's RSVP, a dating Plenty app. of Fish, all those styles. Yep. Yep. You Harmony style? Probably before very, Tinder. Yeah. We were on there, both on there at the same time. She actually contacted me. I want that on the record. <laughs> uh, and she says, hey, how are you doing? So we got chatting. Uh, and then we um, had a quick phone call and I said, uh, and then we reorganized the date, which was actually an uncle in uh, Balaclava yep. there. We decided to go. And at no point in time before we got to the restaurant or anything like that, did she ask me anything about uh, my disability. Had she have asked me, I would have, of course, of course, um, spoken about it. We'll stop there for a second. Um, you were yeah. open about your disability on your profile. Or did you just have photos no, of your well, face? Well, well, I, I wasn't. So, so uh, that's another one as well. Um, it's it's a funny one because you don't want to be defined by your disability. It's it's. A, I don't want to say, hi, I'm Mike. I've got no legs. I love playing golf. Should be the hundredth like, hey, thing about you. In, yeah. You know what I mean? Like, what, why, do, why do we have to do that? In some ways, it might be a great filter. No, but on the contrary, it leaves you open to you look like a bit of a jerk because if you turn up and the person doesn't know you have a disability and yes. you spring it on them, so yeah. it's, an, it's a 50-50. could be either way. It's a really tough one to broach, yeah. I'll also say that's uh, why at the start of all of our podcasts, we like people to introduce themselves first and then the first yeah. question we ask is, what is your disability? Because we want that to be the secondary part of the introduction. But unless people want to be... Of course. Um, ...use their disability identity language first, you know? Yeah, it's, a, it's a choice for people. Look, I, I, it was a tough one, but I, I just thought, you know what, if anyone asks, I'm more than happy to be open honest about it. It's not like I was trying to um, hide anything, but we... We went to to dinner, and I wear long short. I wear long pants, and I wear shorts sometimes. I was wearing long pants. Um, you can tell, you can see that I'm missing a finger pretty easily. That's an easy one to pick up, and my nose as well. Uh, we went and we met, and I was like, "Wow, God, she has like most amazing teeth you've ever seen in your life. Like she's just got these amazing big white teeth." Can confirm. And uh, and 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 she was stunning. I was like, "Goodness me, she's." really really beautiful and we were chatting and we got along great as well like we was just great banter good connection and we finished the meal and straight away i said i, I obviously lived in balaclava she was in richmond but i said I'd, would you like a lift home uh gentlemanly thing to do and she says she said sure so she drove me home we went all the way up chapel street and we were still continuing on this fantastic conversation we got to her house and i remember i was sort of a bit nervous and we parked the car out the front <laughs> Uh, of her house and she's like I live over there and I'm like oh well, I had a great night you know um, we should do it again sometime and she's very forthright being American she goes well aren't you going to walk me in like that like I don't, I can't do her accent but <laughs> she insists that I walk her to the door um, so I get out of the car walk her to the door and and then we sort of like I remember so clearly that that we, we, we had our first kiss but it was one of the most awkward moments um, <laughs> I've ever had because we both have massive teeth and we went in for this kiss and our front teeth banged <laughs> together first up but then 
anyway, I said goodnight to her. I went home and I'll never forget. Um, Andrea's quite good on the old Google and she'd already know, knew everything about me prior to, to meeting me, which she didn't let on. And then I got a, a message um, later that night. She said, Mike, um, I just want to let you know that I had a fantastic night uh, with you tonight and I know about your legs and I don't care. Oh. Right then and there, I thought, you know, she was, she's a pretty special person to begin with. I'm very, very lucky. And now we've been married for a year um, and we're trying to, uh, for a family. And uh, yeah, I'm just, uh, it's, it's a good place to be in. Congratulations. Did you, did you reply, I've got the important leg? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, that was, that was always, uh, I mean, that, that was on the, on the agenda, wasn't it? <laughs> Surely. Was, were I can you tell the you a, a story please. off air about that one, um, um, Dill, but there was uh, but not, nothing too it? bad. Give it all, give us all air. Okay, well. Yeah, All right, I can do that. So, well, we 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 had our second date the night. Oh, she's gonna she's out the, out the front there. She'll probably kill me. But um, we had our second date the night before. It was it was, it was a bit of a laugh actually, and and uh, we were very attracted to each other. So um, after we ate dinner, um, she'd organised this beautiful dinner, cooked dinner. After we ate dinner, we were you know started to smooch on the couch as you do, and and we were things were sort of progressing. We were kind of getting hot and heavy, and um, we decided as you do to consenting adults, we would take it to the bedroom. Get to the bedroom and um, I can't live on this. <laughs> Get to the bedroom uh, and we and we start. You know, we were on the bed, hot and heavy, and then all of a sudden I stopped and I said and I said to her, "Oh, I'm I'm really sorry, but this never ever happens to me." And she's looking at me and she's going like, "What's what's going on?" And she's like, "Oh." That's okay. Like that's okay. No worries at all. Like you know, these this happens sometimes. Like, and she's thinking oh. something. I'm like, no, no. And oh, I realize, I realize what she was thinking. I go, no, 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 no. No problems. You don't have you don't have a hammer, do you? And she goes, what the? Yeah, out in the second drawer down, there's a hammer. And I'm what? like, oh, I'll be right back. My leg, uh, I've got to press a button on my leg to get it off, and it had become fused, and it does very, very rarely become fused. And I needed a hammer oh, that's good, to be dude. able to bash my leg. <laughs> I thought you were about and the dirty genre or something. Yeah. I'll go, I'll be or right back. And, 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 and then I and then I bashed both legs. Um, off they came and uh, yeah, the rest was sort of history. <laughs> it was a bit of a funny That's moment. That's amazing. Sure. Uh, you're amazing. That's that was a thrilling, God, thrilling yeah, story. We are fifty odd minutes in, brother. You your storytelling just flows yeah. so beautifully, you know what I mean? And Thanks, I think that's why, you know, we're getting on really well and uh, I really appreciate you coming on and sharing your story. We do have one more thing before we leave though. We ask people a bowl of uncomfortable, a question sent in from a listener, uh, whereby we, you know, you, you can answer it, you don't have to answer it, but see how you go. Do you feel bad or guilty about profiting off your disability in your work? Absolutely not. That's the wrong way around when you say it like that to me. That's how I feel anyway. Yep. I, don't ever, I, don't, I, never, I never sat up one day and go, you know what, I'm going to use my disability to profit. It was more. It was more of a case of people saying, "Hey, would you like? Would you? Would you feel comfortable coming and sharing your story early days?" And I'm like, "Okay." And then I went to a school in front of 150 kids, and I had a 45 minute keynote to do, and I I burnt through all my material in five minutes, and I had nothing else to say. <laughs> so it wasn't a great experience. That's and, like and I realized there's a lot more to speaking than than you, than people think. You hear a lot of people say, oh, you know, they get paid so much money for an hour keynote. A lot goes into that, you know, lived experience, you know, you've, you, everything you've experienced to date. Um, and also to be able to get up and share it with people is, is a big thing as well. Do I feel guilty uh, about profiting from it? 
No, I don't. I, I really don't. I, I feel like I get a lot of, I'm in a very privileged position. Dylan will be able to relate to this. So will Ben, anyone that's on, on stage, we are in a, an amazing position where people will come up to you after you've spoken and share their deepest and darkest with you mm-hmm. because you've been vulnerable and you've shared something and you've moved or had an impact. I'm not saying by any stretch that I have an impact on everyone I speak to. I don't. But there may be one or two people that are battling that may have heard one or two snippets of information when I'm speaking that they relate and connect to that may help them in some way. And if I'm doing that, then that's okay. And if people are willing to pay for it, then I'm not going to feel guilty about profiting from it. Last one. If you could go back in time and not suck in that disgusting Hobart <laughs> air, that actually the cleanest air in the world. No, that's why it's funny. Tasmania has literally the best air in the world. That's why it's funny. It's in Tasmania yeah. for some reason. Um, I love it. I, I love it down there. We still go down there and the um, go shuck some oysters, mate, and go to some wineries. Yeah, 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 it's it's an incredible place. Sorry, it's, yeah, go, deal. Would you go back in time and change that because it had a big impact on yourself and your family? Uh, are you comfortable with what happened, or would you try and alter? Yeah, look, I, I get asked that question almost. You know, every other day, like, and that's always a question um, at, that audiences ask. And I guess that's a, a, it gives you a bit of an indication of where people's heads are at. Like they want to go back and change. And it's again, going back to that, well, why, why me? Why did this have to happen to me? Mm-hmm. If you ask me that question, maybe five to seven to eight, nine years uh, following my illness, I probably would have answered with, yeah, I would go back and change it. But 18 years on and knowing um, how far I've come and how it's just become my life, and whilst it's not the perfect life, it's the a life that I've grown to love and and be proud of the fact of, of what I've been able to overcome instead of seeing that as something that's a negative. I don't think now I would ever, ever change it. I, I It's just part of who I am now and I, I accept it. And that's that's a really, it's taken time to get there, but it's a really powerful thing. You're a beautiful man with yeah. a beautiful story. There's so many great reasons why I love this podcast, but there's Two reasons, Me too, great. two reasons why I don't. One, I just cancel myself out of business for speaking <laughs> yeah. because you are <laughs> such a great tough. storyteller. And number two, uh, other radio shows stealing our guests they are. and using them on their radio show. Ben Pentengill well, got stolen. Guess who's about to get stolen? Yeah, my brother. Uh, because you are a weapon. You're very good, my friend. Yeah, and no, I thank you guys. You guys have been fantastic. And uh, you really, you really, you've mentioned before that I, I've, I've got a great way of keeping the conversation flowing. I, I would I would challenge you on that because you guys have great rapport and being able to ask the right questions. So it just felt like this morning coming on here, um, hopefully people got something out of it, but it was also really conversational and great to chat with you guys. And uh, quick, you got a book as well. What's it called? It's called Ditch the Dead Weight. You can catch that. So, and what's the best way via email? Mike at realliferesilience.com.au, which is um, a business that Ben and I have together. And we're, we're doing some great things in schools at the moment. Um, we're doing uh, a whole bunch of video content because virtual is the new norm mm-hmm. uh, and the new, the new, uh, the new future. Uh, we've created a, a really great program for, to help kids build resilience called The Game Plan, which is currently being sold into schools around the country. So if you want to contact me, um, yeah, you can get in touch with me, Mike at realliferesilience.com.au. When are you going to teach me how to play golf as well? <laughs> When you, when you make time for me, okay, bud. Okay, okay. <laughs> hey, that's right. <laughs> Any time you want. Oh, yeah. good gear. All right, we'll finish on that note. See you, Thanks, mate. Thanks, mate. <laughs> See you, mate. I still get chills thinking about how well he's told that story about driving in the car. I was convinced there was going to be a car accident. So Convinced. Because you, t- you said, don't look up Mike. I want you to go in completely with no knowledge of his disability and how he got there. And I was convinced it was going to be a car accident or something tragic that happened while having a few drinks on that footy trip. And then bang, yeah. out of nowhere, Manager Cockle. He tells that story so great. And obviously, he's a speaker you can get in touch with. You heard his details. So please do if you think it's going to help your business. Man, and 
just another person who's being so authentic and so vulnerable yeah. on Listen Able. And that's what makes it successful. And next week episode is no different. You're going to have to wait another couple of weeks until then. Or if you're catching up on these, just keep binge. rolling through. Hey, binge. We binge love a good it. little binge. Through. Also, please subscribe, write a comment. But most importantly, tell people about this podcast yeah. if you think they need to learn something, but also if they want to be entertained. It's, you know, we're not preaching to people. We just want to share, you know, beautiful stories and, and get the words out there of the, the community of people with disability. We'll catch you in the next episode. Listen Able was presented by Dylan Alcott and Angus O'Loughlin and produced in collaboration with Podcast One Australia. Audio production by Darcy Thompson and the music was written and performed by Eliza Hull. Listener.